Right. The Ten Commandments, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth or beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow them, bow to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punish, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guilt, guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath the day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord has made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it a holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now we get to the exciting part, I guess. <laughs> Jesus clears the temple courts. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found the people settle, selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the, of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins in money, chain, money exchangers and overturned their tables. Those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us? to prove your authority to do this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days, but the temple, has spoken of, but the ten the temple he has spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. They said, they believed the scripture from the word that Jesus has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. So shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that... Your word is like a refining fire that 
that reads us and that shows us what is in our hearts. And we pray that today you would continue the process of transforming us from glory to glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, the cleansing of the temple is what this passage is uh, usually called. The cleansing of the temple. Uh, And there's a a number of things that we can learn from uh, this passage. Uh, And the first thing that we might pick up is that anger is not always bad. Verse 14. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So we see that uh, Jesus is angry, and we also know that Jesus is without sin. That shows us that being angry is not necessarily sinful. In fact, sometimes the right thing to be is to be angry. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 4, 26, and there he is quoting Psalm 4. He says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. This assumes that there is a right and a wrong way to be angry. The wrong way of being angry uh, often is the kind that we are, are probably unfortunately familiar with. It feels very good in the moment, but then when we've calmed down, we, we regret it. Uh, why is that? Well, that's because that is usually a, uh, not a, a righteous kind of anger, but a self-righteous anger. In those cases, our anger is towards, uh, towards others is an expression of actually something going on within us. It's maybe our stress or our tiredness which gets to us, a way to let out pain because our ego has been hurt in some way. Anger can function as a sort of a release valve. We, we feel good letting it all out. We feel like our, our emotions are justified. And the person who's on the receiving side of the anger is, is, is just a tool for us to help us recalibrate our emotions. But what happens then is when we've let off all our steam, we uh, have to go back, we come to our senses, we go back and we have to apologize to the person that we were angry at. We, we say things like, I shouldn't have said that, I didn't mean it like that, uh, I shouldn't have pushed you or, or hurt you. And when that happens, uh, is that, uh, when that happens, in our anger we have sinned, we've lost control. But that's not the case with Jesus. That's, Jesus is not... Uh, kind of frustrated and at a boiling point and, and sort of having to let it all out. This is not a story of Jesus sort of compensating for an emotional lack. His anger isn't self-righteous. It doesn't say something about something going on within him. He doesn't do it to make himself feel bit better, but instead it is righteous anger. As the di- disciples say, it is zeal for his father's house. So a deep sense within him that how people are treating the temple is not right. If we want to be more like Jesus, then there are plenty of situations that should make us angry. For example, to be more like Jesus means being angry at the terrorist attacks by Hamas on the 7th of October. And it equally means being angry at the treatments of refugees and women and children who are living amidst devastation in Gaza. Unless we feel angry 
against wrongs and injustices of all kinds, we are not like Jesus. It's not enough for us to retreat and to say, you know, I don't care, it's not my fight, I have nothing to do with it. Because righteous anger is an expression of love and compassion for victims. And it is anger against the forces of violence and evil. Anger is not always bad. Secondly, holiness is important. Why, why is Jesus angry? Verse 16. To those who sold doves, Jesus said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. This was the Jewish Passover and Jews from all over the world were traveling to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. And as it is not very practical, if you are traveling for days, weeks, maybe months to get to Jerusalem, it's not practical to bring your sacrificial animal with you. So what you do is you buy one there at the temple. The issue is that the buying of the selling is not happening outside of the temple, but it is ha happening inside the temple courts. This is a, a model of the temple at that time. So the high building in the center there is, uh, houses the holy place. And within uh, the holy place, you have behind the curtain, the holy of holies, the most holy place. The court directly around the holy place is the court for the, for the Jewish men. The court in front of that court is the court for the women uh, who, were not, uh, who were separated from the men, uh, not as close to the holy place. And then the big courts on either side are the courts for the Gentiles. And it's in the courts for the Gentiles that the selling of animals uh, is happening. And what this means is that Gentiles who are there can't worship in peace because right next to them are these cows and these chickens and these doves and these people exchanging money. There's noise and there's smell, there's constant activity. It's no place for worship. And so Jesus throws over the tables and he drives the animals out in order to restore correct worship to the Gentile court. This shows us that holiness is important. Holiness matters. The word holy means set apart. And the temple had been set apart as holy because it was a place where you could worship God. And the reason why holiness matters is because holiness is one of the defining characteristics of who God is. When you want to describe God, one of the first words that should, should come into your mind is holy. When, when God leads his people out of Israel, uh, uh, his people of Israel out of Egypt, he teaches them to become like him and he uses these words, be holy because I am holy. So be set apart because I am set apart. And God is holy, meaning that he is set apart from us. He is holy with a W other. He's holy other. He's completely other to us. He's completely holy, completely good, completely pure. He's completely set apart and we, we are not. A quick uh, Hebrew lesson. In, in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize a word, you repeat it. So, for example, in Deuteronomy, uh, in your NIV Bibles, it will say, follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So literally, in the Hebrew, it says, justice, justice you shall pursue. So justice is repeated. In other words, that means, of course, you should pursue real justice. Don't just pursue justice, pursue 
pure justice, real justice. Perfect justice really matters. So this is, this is a way uh, in Hebrew language of, of, of emphasizing a word, saying how important it is. So when it comes to God's holiness, you might expect that God is not just called holy, but holy, holy, purely holy. But of course, God is not called holy, holy, because at communion in a moment, we will say holy, holy, holy Lord. God is not just holy. He's not just very holy. He is holy, 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 infinitely holy. When Isaiah sees God, he says, woe is me, because he knows he will die after facing someone who is so completely holy in comparison with his own sinfulness. And because God is so holy, so worthy of all honor and praise, we cannot simply approach him carelessly. We cannot approach him thoughtlessly, disrespectfully, thinking that he's simply a slightly better, slightly bigger version of us. He isn't. He's altogether holy, altogether different. And so when we come to worship, we must, we must come remembering that. That doesn't mean that we have to be afraid of him, but we must remember that we're in the presence of not just anyone, but holy, almighty God. I asked you earlier to consider what might make Jesus angry about our worship. And I don't know what kind of answers you came up with, but, but there are chances, that, uh, chances are that you had an answer, that you had something to say. And it's not bad in a time of Lent to reflect on those things that we might need to ask God's forgiveness for, when the times when we've forgotten that God's holiness really matters. So, holiness matters. And thirdly, Jesus is the true temple. Verse 18, the Jews then responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So the, the Jewish leaders, they uh, demand from Jesus to know who does he think he is causing this kind of uproar in the temple. And Jesus responds by challenging them to destroy the temple and, and he will raise it again in three days. Now we know in hindsight that this is a reference to Jesus himself, to his death and his resurrection. But then the question is, why is Jesus saying, why is Jesus calling himself the temple? Why is he saying that he is the temple? In order to understand this, we need to consider the role and importance of the temple to the Jews. The temple at the time of Jesus uh, was Herod's temple because King Herod had put a lot of money into expanding the temple, which had previously been rebuilt uh, when the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon stories of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. So that was the second temple. And before the second temple, there was the first temple, the, the, the temple built by Solomon. And before that temple, there was the tabernacle, which was kind of a portable tent tabernacle, uh, a tent tabernacle temple, which went with the Israelites through the desert as they traveled to the promised land. 
and the tabernacle, and then later on the temple, both housed the same thing, namely the very presence of God. In Chronicles 2, we read that when the temple was dedicated, the last thing that happened is that the glory of the Lord filled it. So God filled the temple with his presence. You could say that he moved into the temple. It was where he chose to dwell with his people. Behind the curtain, inside the holy place, as I said, is the Holy of Holies, a place so very holy. Why was it so very holy? It was the Holy of Holies because God was there. And so you could say that the temple is the representation of the place where heaven touches earth. But what Jesus is saying here is that something better than the temple is here. Namely, heaven on earth in the flesh. God fully divine and fully human walking among them and they don't even realize it. The Jewish leaders were disrespecting God by disrupting worship with their business but Jesus knew that they would do far worse than disrespect, namely kill God in their midst. You see, at the end of the day, the temple is a sign that points to a future when God would literally be in their midst. Jesus is the real temple that the stone temple was pointing to. But there's more to say on this because we too are God's temple. We occasionally get visitors to St. James. This may have been your experience when you first came. Uh, uh, and, and they come into the building and then they feel slightly underwhelmed by our very lovely but slightly tatty looking school hall. Uh, and they think, hang on, this is not what a church is supposed to be like. Because a church is a holy place where God lives. Wrong. Because listen to what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So the temple in this case is not the church building, but it's the people and that means that God is not present in this building waiting for us to turn up on Sunday morning. He's present in us when we gather. That's what it means when Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Because he's in the people, he's not in the building. We, the people, the church are the temple of God. And if you think to what that just meant about the stone temple, what it meant about Jesus, then that means that we are also the place where heaven meets earth. It means as well that if you want to experience the presence of God, that where you need to be is in the midst of his people, because God dwells in the midst of his people. We are God's temple. But this, this leaves us with the problem that we started with, namely that a holy God cannot dwell among an unholy people. How can a holy God, a God who gets angry at unholy worship, possibly dwell among an unholy people? How can he be in this meeting if he, cons if he considers the things that we've been talking about, the things that might make him angry? 
How can he be in this meeting and not whip us out of the building for all that we do wrong? When Jesus cleansed the temple, it says in verse 17 that his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now that's a quote from Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. So uh, passion for the temple, passion for God's house will consume, will, will destroy me. And that was, of course, literally true of Jesus because his passion for God's holiness did indeed consume him. It did kill him. Because when Jesus is condemned to death on the cross, it is on the basis of the claim that he makes in this episode, namely, uh, the Jewish leaders say that he said that he would destroy the temple. He doesn't say that. But it's the claim that he will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's eventually the, the claim that, that they bring that causes him to be sentenced. So the cleansing of the temple is the excuse that Jesus' opponents use to put him to death. But Jesus' death is also that which delivers us from sin, which makes us holy. So when God looks at us, he, he isn't angry because Jesus has taken the penalty for our sin. When God looks at us, he, he, he declares us holy, worthy of his presence, worthy to be the ones who, who carry the presence of God. When we're in his presence, we're not consumed like Isaiah was worried that would happen with him. And that's because Jesus was, of course, consumed in our place. And that means that we have this unbelievable privilege, unbelievable privilege of hosting in our midst the very presence of God here on earth. We ourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives among us. Shall we pray? Lord God, we're struck again this morning through this story with the awareness that you dwell in the midst of your people. We thank you that we are your temple, that you live in us through your spirit. And Lord, in this period of Lent, as we, as we reflect on the things that uh, we, we haven't brought into the light yet, the things that we need to ask your forgiveness for, we pray that you would continue that process of sanctification in us, making us holy, making us worthy of the calling that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you that you are not angry with us, but that you love us. And we thank you that you call us to be the people who bring your presence out into the world. So fill us again with your spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.